In the Gospels, Jesus makes some predictions. Uh, probably the biggest one he makes is the idea that if you follow him, you'll have eternal life, and if you don't, you won't. Um, that's kind of a big one um, that's there. And that does have to do with what we tend to call the second coming. Um, you call it the second coming because we just did that in January. We, or excuse me, December, we, we celebrated the first coming. We called that Christmas, Advent, Jesus coming as a baby in Bethlehem and all those things. The second coming is, is something that we also have to deal with and, and talk about because Jesus does. He also makes other predictions. One of his main predictions, and we'll get this later as we get into more the rest of Mark, he predicts that he's going to be handed over to the Romans. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be killed. And then he's going to rise on the third day. That's another big prediction that he tends to. It doesn't seem like everybody's understanding that, even his own followers. What we're dealing with today is the second half of another prediction that he makes. Um, he makes a prediction about what's going to happen in about 40 years. Um, but intermixed with that, it seems to me he's also talking about the second coming. So last week we talked about um, verses 5 through 23, which it seems to me has probably mostly about the destruction of the temple along with 28 and 31. Um, those other little sections seem to be clearly talking uh, about the second coming. Um, this is called the Olivet Discourse uh, because it's on the Mount of Olives. Um, and what, what you have to deal with is remember who, this is always true. If you go back today and read Jeremiah, remember who he's talking to. If you go back and read Isaiah, who's he talking to? You got to know that first. Doesn't mean it doesn't have something to do with you, but it not at the first. And this is the same thing. This is contextual. It's historical. We need to understand it in its historical context. Then we can apply it to our lives. And then we get in trouble when we mess up the pronouns. So this would be a, this is a, a model of what the temple would have looked like. So this is what they're looking at. They're up on the Mount of Olives, which if we're going to use this, would be about right in here. Um, and they'd be seeing this. And when I, I'm going to read this whole chapter because I think it gives you flavor. You could either look at this, because this is what they'd be seeing, or you can certainly follow the text in, in, in Mark 13. And what I'm going to do is what I'm, I'm making a case that a lot of this is about what happened in 70 AD. We do know from uh, his, history, Josephus, other places, uh, that the, the temple was destroyed completely. The Jerusalem was destroyed. Um, Jesus is predicting that. Um, so... And think about, again, we were, we've been talking about family. These guys were essentially his family. Um, they've been together for three and a half years, it seems. They know each other really well. They don't completely understand what's going on. Jesus, of course, is in charge. He knows what's going on. And as you think about what, you know, maybe you get a little bit of emotion of what's going on. And I'll try to show you. We're going to hit it, obviously, more deeply as we go through. But think about some of this seems to be talking about this. Some of it seems to be talking about something later, and it really comes down to the pronouns. Um, so verse 3, if you want to follow along or just get that same feel. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? Their question was about the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? 
And Jesus began to say to them, and then this is what we call the first part of the Olivet Discourse. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end's not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, you 12. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father and his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So again, he's talking to these 12. This is the context. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop go not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter, especially in Iowa. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> but you know what it means, right? For in those days there, has, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short these days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says, luck, here's the Christ, or luck, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all these things. So we have these days. He's talking about that. We talked about that last week. I think it fits historical context. I'm not trying to make a call if this will happen again, but it did happen in the past. But then, in verse 24, you get a different set of days. But in those days, after this tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. Again, he's not, not directly seem like he's talking to them anymore, is it? It's something after. And then he comes back to this lesson. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. You 12 know that summer's near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And we talked about this last week. Some of the atheists from the 20th century said, well, Jesus was predicting his second coming in a generation, which is approximately 40 years. I read this, and I think he was I think he was predicting the destruction of the temple within 40 years. And by golly, he got it almost to the day. 
Very good prophecy. And notice he's saying, you, I'd say to you, but concerning that day, well, some other day, some later day, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And when I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And he's talking about the sermon there. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Stay awake. Be alert. You know, that's is what he's talking about. So in those days after the tribulation, it appears to me that he's talking about the coming, the second coming that hasn't happened, in, it hasn't happened yet. Um, the timing appears more clear in Mark, I will agree, than it does in Luke <laughs> and in Matthew. It's much harder. And you got to hold on this loosely a little bit. I, don't, I wasn't going to say it, but I think I kind of will. When I was growing up, one of the bands I really liked uh, as a kid uh, and a teenager was 38 Special. We haven't played any of him yet, or them, I don't think, have we? Um, mostly kind of a folky rock. Anybody remember 38 Special? You want me to sing some for you? <laughs> you remember there was a song, and it was about, uh, it's all, they're all love songs, you know, but, and do what you want with that, you know. Um, there's probably better music than that, but I kind of liked the guitar and the, the way it was going. But there was a song they had called Hold On Loosely. You remember that one? But, but don't let go, you know. I think that's what you do with this type of stuff. I, I've come up with what I think may be a, a very plausible way to, to interpret this text. There are people that disagree that are very faithful. And so you got to hold a little bit loosely. You know, this isn't, your, your salvation is not dependent on how you interpret this particular text. It is dependent on the one who's speaking. But I think, again, is this a plausible? Certainly. Am I 100% sure I'm right? No. I'm not. I'm right around 74% sure. Now, I don't know. Whatever. I think it's more likely than not that this is true. Uh, but I think you have to do that. And then let iron sharpen iron. When you look at this back in 24 and 25, again, what we tend to do, we do this with the book of Revelation all the time. We act like we're the first persons that ever read this stuff. I don't know which one it is. It's either stupid or arrogant or both. I mean, the book of Revelation was a bit was written to a bunch of really, really persecuted churches in the first century. It says that right in the first couple chapters. It doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning for us. But did you know that 80% of the book of Revelation, all the idioms and all the things that they talk about, the dragons and all this stuff, are in the Old Testament? Same thing here. You might have thought, well, what does he mean that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light? Hmm, this is probably not to be taken literally. And I, can, I think I know why. Isaiah 13 is about a prophecy against Babylon. So this was written sometime in the either very early 8th century or late 7th century. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. He's talking about what, hap what happens to Babylon. It does happen to them. Persia comes and wipes them out. But as far as we know, the sun stayed shining. 
And the moon was still there, and the stars kept giving their light. So what's he talking about? Did you know what the strongest god, supposed god in Babylon was? It was the moon god. Who was second? It was sun god. Who were the other gods? Stars. What he's talking about, I think Isaiah, is Yahweh's coming. He's the only god. The rest of this stuff is just superstition. And he's using, there's going to be destruction, and Jesus is using the same metaphor. All these other things you follow are not going to matter if you don't follow me when this happens. Joel is about the day of the Lord. Same thing. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Again, Joel was given at a time when pagan gods was what Yahweh was trying to get them away from. Now, does that, may this happen? God could do what he wants. But I don't think that's the main point here. The main point is judgment will come and everything you follow will not be useful to you when the second coming happens. It's almost like you should stay alert. <laughs> Again, in context, this makes sense. I know I see that, and I, it is, if, if, if I'm right, which I think I am or I wouldn't be telling you this, what you see on Facebook and all these other places about the signs of the times, we'll talk about that in a minute, I don't think this is probably talking about the, the second coming. I think it was talking about the stuff that happened in the first century, more than likely. We'll go on and, and look at that. But they in this section is not you. It implies this is something other than the 12. He's saying something later. But then he talks about coming in the clouds. Now, there are people who believe that this happened in 70 A.D. too. I am not one of them, um, that somehow metaphorically. But you remember the clouds. The clouds is, you know, you've probably heard the term, I didn't put it up there in your, in your bulletin, but the Shekinah glory. This is a glory that God shone at Sinai and the glory put into the Holy of Holies. It's really cool if you read about it. The word Shekinah is not really even in the, but it's kind of a term that the Jewish folks came up with. Look at Exodus 19, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, and the people may hear when I speak with you, and they may also believe you forever. But remember, there was just a little bit of God there. You don't want to see him all or you get, well, you disintegrate. It's a bad, bad deal. Um, but it's still, and then in, in Acts 1, you can go there later, that's when Jesus ascends, and what's he go up into? cloud. So when he goes, and he says, two angels are saying, standing there and say, hey, you guys, you got stuff to do, go do it. But this same Jesus will come back the same way he left. And how did he go up? In the clouds. And how's he going to come back? In the clouds. It kind of fits. And then you get, he talks about, you kind of miss this sometimes, that the angels will gather his elect from the four winds. This is in the Bible quite a bit. You see it in Matthew. Matthew 16 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has said. The angels accompanying him is, a, is the end of times thing, end of a second coming idea. And you, you also have this in Matthew 13, which I'm going to turn to just because it's, it's an interesting parable. It's at the end of, uh, toward the end of Matthew verse 13, verse 47. Matthew 13 gives you seven kingdom parables. And this is the last one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. 
When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So you got good fish and you got bad fish. So you got like tilapia and sushi. You know, I don't know. You know, however you want to put that. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this angel thing, it, it's, it's a judgment parable again here in Mark. And then in my opinion, I think the lesson of the fig tree is going back because he's going back to you again. The idea of the 12. You need to be ready. You think about up, uh, up before that. He says, don't go, on your, your, don't go up on your housetop. How many of you people hang out on your housetop? Now, if you were in ancient Palestine, that was pretty common. This is culturally contextual, isn't it? You know, and you don't go in the winter. It's like, I've been in Judea. Their winters aren't that bad. It never gets down to 20 below, and then snows like 5,000 inches. And then it's gone to 20 below again. You know. You think heaven's going to be like that? That is a rabbit trail we will not go down. But I, I'm thinking that may be a little different. Um, but he's ref referring back to these things, these things that are going to happen. And he says, you guys need to listen to my words. And the p persecution along with the political and social unrest, we saw that happen. As far as we know, well, there's only one, maybe you can, this is a, it's always nice to, to have quizzes during sermons, right? Um, one of the apostles in the Bible, actually does get martyred. Anyone want to guess who that was? You got a one in 12 chance. Peter, no. Nobody wants to do it. Starts with a J. James. James is killed by Herod in Acts. Probably right about 10 years after Jesus was crucified, which is kind of hard, you know. Why? Why? He's a good guy. But traditionally, all of them but John were martyred. For the, I mean, you, you read this, and it's like, they're like, yeah, this happened. I, I'm sure they, and I don't know if you knew this, but if Josephus, who is a first century uh, Jewish historian, he tells us that all of the Christians got out of Judea. Most of the Jews stayed in Jerusalem. And you can read it. You know, it says, you know, people say, well, this wasn't the worst. I don't know. Per capita, maybe... Josephus might be using hyperbole, but it's something like between 800,000 and a million Jews got slaughtered in, in like three months by the Roman army. They cut off their supplies, and they're in, in Jerusalem, and they're eating their own babies just to get, get from one day to the next. Is, can you think of something worse? And will never be again. It seems to fit the historical context. So this seems to make sense, and then... He says it's, it's going to be, it says he or it is near, is at the gates, and that's what happened. Some people think, I think it probably makes sense, it's probably talking about the Roman general. I don't know if you knew this, but the Roman general Vespasian came to put down the rebellion, the Jewish rebellion in 67 AD. Rome, if you didn't mess with Rome, it worked, went pretty well. If you just kind of stay in your own lane, Rome was a pretty good place to live. But if you rebelled, 
then they sent the legions, and that's what happened. And within that, and some people think Daniel's involved in this with his prophecy, but what, within that, Vespasian gets called out because the emperor gets killed, Nero gets uh, assassinated, and there's three kings in one time, and maybe that's the three little horn thing in Revelation. I don't know. That'd be a whole other sermon. But, uh, but the idea is Titus ends up finishing the job and just completely, completely mauls the temple. That might be what's being talked about here. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And what's odd is we think Jesus, well, not odd, but cool, we think Jesus, we, the timing's a little hard, was crucified right around 30 A.D., so this would be where this is, 30 A.D. A generation's 40 years, so you guys, you're not, you don't have to be an actuary, right? 30 plus 40 equals, and what year was the, this is a really good prediction. Not that we have to have it to believe in Jesus, but it sure doesn't hurt. Uh, Jesus' word can be trusted. Con but concerning that day, what's he say about that day? Verse 32, but concerning that day, the second coming, which if you didn't know hadn't happened yet, because it wouldn't be 20 below, right? We'd be new heaven and new earth, and there's not going to be 20 below, right? I don't think so. Um, no one knows. Hmm. No one knows. What does that mean? Only the Father, not even the Son, and that's a whole other thing to deal with. So when somebody tells you today that I know when Jesus is coming back, I would take him to this verse and say either you're right or Jesus is right. I'm going to go with him. And, and when you look at this, the no one knows the timing. You get this, and this is just one other verse. In verse in, in Second Peter, who was one of the guys who asked him the question, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's the, the metaphor you get all the time, a thief. Why a thief? Well, because it, you don't know when a thief's coming. Because if you knew, then they wouldn't take your stuff, you know. It, it's kind of subtle. It's like they get in and get out without you seeing it. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works uh, that are done on it will be exposed. And then he goes on, the new heaven, new earth. So you have the analogy of thief, and you have the idea that we're never going to know. So you tell me, and you're welcome to cry out right now, why do we get people who keep predicting it? And there's, I know you know the word, I use it, starts with an S, People are stupid. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. I mean, I mean, or at least ignorant. Do they not know this is here? This is not that hard. Um, and think about this, and I know it's hard sometimes. Logically, I really wish they would teach logic in high school. We should probably teach logic in churches. You know, it's like, logically, why would you give signs to something that you didn't know when it was going to happen? That just makes no sense to me. I, if you can help me with that, I would love it. I hold on loosely, but I won't let go. If you cling too tightly, no, I'm being reckless. But, <laughs> but why give signs to something that you can't know? I just don't get that. that that's always been a problem with me. And tell you the truth, as a young Christian, I read that, and I'm like, I just don't get it. How could, here's some signs, but you're never going to know. Well, why give me the signs? Unless... The signs are not for the second coming. The signs are for the destruction of Jerusalem. 
Ooh, well, that makes because he said you're going to know that it's going to be in a generation. It's going to happen when this stuff happens. Get out of town, and they did. It's almost like the Christians listened. I mean, Joseph even says that it's like almost it's like the Christians had some information that the Jews didn't have. Well, they had this. When this stuff starts happening, you get out of town, or you're going to get mauled. And they did, and they didn't get mauled. So it seems to make more sense. You're, you're not going to know this. So what do we do if we're not going to know? Because obviously it's quite important. What am I going to do on Facebook if we can't argue about the second coming? Because we just had that scripture with, with, with uh, the dedication of Waverly. You know, go into all the world and figure out when I'm coming back. Isn't that the Great Commission? Get on Facebook and just beat each other to death with stupid comments about when I'm coming back. That's the great, no, make disciples. What difference does it make if we figure, if we could figure it out, which I don't think we can, if we don't know Jesus? You know, how often does Paul talk about, not much. How often does Peter just mentions it one time? It doesn't matter if you could, if you could know when he comes back, if you're not part of the family, if you're not in Christ, if you don't have the Father is the one you can pray to because of the Son and the power of the Spirit. So what's he tell us to do? Stay awake. Be ready. Well, how am I going to be ready? Well, maybe you could be doing stuff that would honor him when he does show up. That would be good. Well, what could I do? Well, read the rest of the New Testament. It's really not that hard. That's hard to do. It's not hard to understand, right? So when you think about this, I do think this makes sense. I've, I've said this before in Bible studies. I said, how come I never get on, you know, I keep saying Facebook. It could be on X or Snapchat or, you know, all those other wonderful social media options. Why do people never say, you know, it's 75 out, really nice. My job's really good. My church isn't that annoying. Everything looks really good. My car's running good. Jesus must be coming back. What's the, what, what do you usually get? Bad things. Why? It's because of these signs, right? It's got to be bad. Well, what if the signs aren't for the second coming? What if they were for the, you know, oh, hold on loosely, right? But again, don't major in the minors. You probably remember this. I remember we were driving back. Uh, from Colorado. It was the last trip our family had together, as a, you know, because the kids were, you know, doing all that marriage stuff and kids and stuff. And, and so we're coming back, and we see, it was like 2011, we saw this um, truck go by, and it said, on the side, it said, Jesus is coming back, and it had a date, which was like two weeks in the past. <laughs> the Bible guarantees it. It was Harold Camping, you can Google him, you know. He had figured out when it was. And people gave up their lives, gave up their life savings and got these trucks and they said, he's coming back. And they're like looking up ready because whatever he'd calculated. And you know, he's like every other person in the history of Christendom that has predicted the date. What do they always have in common? They're always wrong. I guess one way could, we could predict it every day, right? Eventually we get it right. But again, you're majoring in the minors. So... The 12 wouldn't know, and when you read the 12 and Paul in those letters, they, they don't seem to care. 
Because the main thing is to make disciples, let God take care of the timing. The 12 seem to believe that the destruction of Jerusalem and Christ's return were the same. He separates that form, and we see that now. He's talking about one thing and part of this. And I realize that it's, if it was as easy as I make it, everybody would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it, it's a little harder. And I, I, it's, it's, I read people who have different opinions to try to understand. But the main thing you do is know who Jesus is and what he gives you and how do I live. Let him take care of the timing. We don't even know the day of our own death, let alone his second coming. I guess maybe I'll just sum it up with, don't be stupid. <laughs> and if I am, let me know. <laughs> so in 34 through 37, we'll kind of end with it. By direct command and parable, Jesus tells the 12, by extension, all believers prior to his second, just stay awake. And so we'll end with a couple verses. A little bit later, he will tell these same guys that ask him the question, Please stay and pray with me. They're up on the garden. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Of course, they fell asleep, if you remember. But we're going to end with this. It's 1 Corinthians 16. This is a New Living Translation. I really like the way it's put. I think this is what we want to do. Be on guard. Ephesians 6, armor of God, all that stuff. Stand firm in the faith with each other. Be courageous, be strong, because the one who is in you is much more powerful than the one who's in the world. Let us pray. Fathers, we look into this discourse of your son. We know that uh, throughout uh, the 2,000 years since he showed up uh, in the flesh that we struggle with exactly what this means. We, we do hold on loosely, but we do know that it gives us courage to know that you are with us. Uh, that we should be strong, that you give us your spirit to understand and to live a life worthy of the calling. As we go forward, may we try to understand these things better and better, but may we major in the majors. May we follow your son as Lord and Savior, the only way to you and the only one that can give us your spirit to help us live a life worthy of the calling. We pray in his name. Amen.